Your Total Wine & More store is ready to serve you with our always low prices on an incredible 8,000 wines and 2,500 beers. Want it today? Try our same-day delivery or contactless curbside pickup at TotalWine.com. Whether you're grabbing your favorite beer or pouring a glass to enjoy an evening on the deck, Total Wine & More has you covered. Visit any of our 12 stores in Northern Virginia. Your Total Wine & More store is ready to serve you with our always low prices on an incredible 8,000 wines and 2,500 beers. Want it today? Try our same-day delivery or contactless curbside pickup at TotalWine.com. Whether you're grabbing your favorite beer or pouring a glass to enjoy an evening on the deck, Total Wine & More has you covered. Visit any of our 12 stores in Northern Virginia. Welcome to the Indie Film Hustle Podcast, episode number 307. Hack your past with forgiveness. Hack your present with mindfulness. Hack your future with I am enough. Vision Lakahani. Broadcasting from the back alley in Hollywood, it's the Indie Film Hustle Podcast, where we show you how to survive and thrive as an indie filmmaker in the jungles of the film biz. And here's your host, Alex Ferrari. Welcome, my Indie Film Hustlers, to another episode of the Indie Film Hustle Podcast. I am your humble host, Alex Ferrari. Today's show is sponsored by Blackbox. Blackbox is a new platform and community that is all about financial freedom for filmmakers like you. If you join Blackbox, you will be transformed from being a worker to being a maker of your own content. And you'll be making steady passive income from the global market. Blackbox currently allows you to upload your stock footage once, get it to many global agencies, and then allows you to share that passive income stream with your collaborators. Whether you want to submit old footage that's been sitting around in your hard drives or create brand new content, Blackbox is for you. It's really quite revolutionary. With Blackbox, filmmakers can concentrate on making great content while Blackbox takes care of all the business BS. Just visit www.blackbox.global to find out more. And today's show is also sponsored by Indie Film Hustle TV, the world's first streaming service dedicated to filmmakers, screenwriters, and content creators. If you want access to filmmaking documentaries, feature films about filmmaking, interviews with some of the top screenwriters and filmmakers in Hollywood, as well as educational online courses all in one place, IFH TV is for you. Just head over to IndieFilmHustle.tv. Today on the show, we have author and filmmaker James Forshore, and he is the author of a new book called Stock Footage, Everything Under the Sun using archival material to make your good film great. Now, I've talked a little bit about stock footage in, in the past on this show, and it is a very powerful, powerful tool that you could put in your toolbox when making your films, your web series, your content in general. And it is a lot of misinformation out there about what can you use, what's fair use, what, where can you get good stock footage for an affordable price, and all these kind of things. And then the rights to each one and where you can do them and also how you can generate a passive revenue stream by creating your own stock footage and selling it like our sponsor Blackbox uh, helps us out do so well. So there's so many things about stock footage, especially for young filmmakers and filmmakers just starting out to understand where stock footage is and basically anybody in the film business to understand where stock footage is. And James and I go deep into what stock footage is, how can we use it, and how we can make our films better. 
So without any further ado, please enjoy my conversation with James for sure. I'd like to welcome to the show, James for sure, man. How you doing? Pretty good. Thank you so much for doing uh, the show. I really appreciate it. Well, my pleasure. I'm, I'm glad to talk about all things archival material. Well, there is a ton I want to know about stock footage and about archival and all that kind of stuff. But before we get into it, first, can you tell me a little bit about how you got into the business? Um, I got in the business um, a couple of different ways. One is um, my mom um, was Elvis Presley's secretary from 1956 to 61. And then she That's awesome. met a, a, a man named II, who was the grandson of the founder of Paramount. And so they produced shows together. So I was kind of born to this whole mm -hmm. environment, uh, which was a plus and a minus because I, I saw the greatest things about the industry and I saw the worst things about the industry. Mm -hmm. um, in college, um, they gave me a couple of interviews they had done with people that had just gone south and they didn't want to deal with it. And, but I thought, for me, I thought as a career builder, if I wanted to get in this business, they were great. So one was an interview with uh, Conrad Hilton. Mm -hmm. And so I finished that my senior year at the University of California, Santa Cruz, and it aired on TV. So that was my first credit, and I hadn't even graduated yet. And then the second was an interview with uh, Adolf Zucker, who started Paramount Studios. And he had kind of a life the history of the uh, film industry. Mm -hmm. That actually was my first film. I spent about a year, year and a half kind of learning how to make a film, making that, and that's what introduced me to archival material. Very cool. Now, you, your book is called Stock Footage, Everything Under the Sun, Using Archival Material to Make a Good Film Great. Right. Uh, it's a lengthy title, but a great one. <laughs> I, I, frankly, I didn't come up with it. Uh, the the um, Publisher? Coisey did. I mean, and I, th I think it really covers it. I mean, Pretty much. Started stock footage, but there's 25 other chapters about every other type of archival material that actually does go possibly into your film or creative project. Well, let's talk about stock footage. Can you explain to the sure. audience what stock footage is uh, in general? Yeah. Um, anything from the very first film shot in like 1893 18, uh, to uh, something that was shot this morning and is now in the closet because... What do you do with it? Mm -hmm. um, it covers everything that exists. And so when you're looking for material for a shot um, and you don't have a camera and you can't go run outside and go shoot it, you got to find it from someplace. And that falls under what we call archival material houses, uh, stock houses. So you're always looking for material. It's always past tense. It gets a little uh, philosophical, but that's kind of what really is going on here. Now, and is there a big difference between the term archival footage? Because when I think archival footage, I'm thinking old black and white, yeah. you know, old school stuff. You're not thinking of things that were just shot a day ago. Exactly. And that's one of the misconceptions. And one of the reasons I wrote the book, because I, I had um, produced for, you know, I mean, for almost 40 years, and I had spent 20 years teaching too. Mm -hmm. And most of my students, 95% uh, of them, when I mentioned archival or stock, they would go, what, that's grainy old stuff that's public domain. And that's about as far as it went. And uh, it, it's that's like one quarter of 1% of 1%. Mm. A majority of it is everything else. Gone with the wind. Well, if you need a shot of flying monkeys, good place to go. Um, and, uh, you know, man on the moon. That's another piece of stock footage. It's all under stock footage. Um, the broader term is archival footage. It's mm -hmm. the same Thing, but archival material encompasses the whole wide world of existing creative stuff, um, graphics, music, uh, sound effects, um, still photos, newsreels, you know, 
It's massive. It's a massive amount of it's massive. And, and so the, the whole point of the book was a real primer introduction to this massive world in bite-sized pieces. So the filmmakers could look at this and go, Oh God, okay, I can do this. I can get, get this. I can grab this. And suddenly I think projects become a lot more interesting because you can put a lot more stuff in it to tell your story. So you, you mentioned Gone with the Wind, which I think you meant Wizard of Oz because I don't remember flying monkeys and Gone with the Wind. Oh no, Gone, <laughs> yeah, I mentioned Gone with the Wind is another film, but yeah, you know, Wizard of Oz, <laughs> flying monkeys and, you know, yeah. If you want so to how, so <laughs> how would you, so then how would you go about, you know, calling MGM up and going, hey, I'd like to get a scene from Gone with the Wind for my doc or for my narrative feature that, I want it playing in the background or something along those lines. How would you go about? Because I, I, I kind of, we'll, we'll talk a little bit about more of the standard stock footage, like going to a stock footage house and things like that. But for films, I'm really curious about, especially famous ones. Famous films are, are, are a funny little story unto themselves because you'd think the studios would be happy to be able to license and make a million, two million, three million a year. Some studios are. Some studios love to have a few million. Some studios, oh, they can't be bothered. And they will not license it out unless you're a friend of a friend of a friend. So, for example, when I got started back in the early 80s, um, we needed material from uh, Warner Brothers. Um, and I called the contact I had, who was very grouchy and who would all say, I don't know if I want to license you. I don't want to deal with it. So I called the distributor that I was working with, and I said, who do you know there? And he says, well, I know the president. I said, can you call the president? Well, within a, a week... We had the footage okayed at a rate a third of what I could have bargained it for. So part of it comes down to um, just calling the studio, which is all you can do, and typically starts with a letter to the legal department. Mm -hmm. And the other part is if they give you a hard time, call, if you have a distributor, talk to them and find out who knows whom because that also helps. And and then licensing fees vary, I'm assuming. Yes. And um, – let me go back to that last point. Um, I can't stress enough to have a um, expert clip license person do the work for you. It okay. costs a little extra. It may cost you five hundred thousand uh, dollars for for a typical job. But here's the deal: they already have the relationships in place. They already know the people. So you're buying that expertise without having to beg your distributor to do you a favor mm -hmm. uh, that they may or may not be able to do. So having a clip licensed person, and I mentioned some in my book, um, that will help you get through and get the right price because they'll be able to get you the, the price they know is fair. So it's a better price than what you could get probably if you just sure. called up directly and they have no relationship with you. Yeah, this is Pennywise Pennywise. If you really have no money, yeah, do it yourself and, and keep your fingers crossed. Um, but if you have someone in your budget, you just hire someone to do this part of the job because it really is – uh, a full-time job onto itself. And these people who do it have done it for years. They have relationships, uh, relationships that go back years and uh, they know the prices. So they're really a well worth uh, acquiring. I, I worked on a film, uh, or excuse me, a show for Hulu. And I noticed that one of the characters had a image of John Carpenter's The Thing, another thing, yeah. uh, They Live on it. And I asked the director and the producers of it, because I was working with them in post. I'm like, how did you get that? Like, you can't, like, how did he's like, we called up the studio and we go, Hey, we want to use an image for a t-shirt. And it was fairly affordable. Um, like extremely affordable actually for what they wanted. They're like, yeah, we'll design it. Just send us, send it over to us and we'll approve it and then just pay us. And we're good. That's kind of yeah, how it works. 
it it can. Uh, I did a Discovery Channel special. I needed um, uh, uh, like a minute of Walk the Dinosaur from you know, many years oh, ago, yeah. and yeah, all we just called up. I think it was Disney at the time, and or, or who? No, well, that was another film. But yeah. I called up the owner, and they said, "Sure, you know, put it in," because it's promotion. So a lot of times, people are glad to give away things, let alone get money, if it falls into promoting their item if it's available at that time. And then, and does is it benefit you more if you're a bigger project or uh, to get that kind of uh, giveaway stuff as opposed, or they'll look at you and go, oh, they have money, so they can I can charge them. So it's like it's a little double edged sword. Yeah, well, they they go by market. So if you sit there and say uh, Warner Brothers is distributing our feature length film worldwide, they'll say dollar dollar dollar. Mm-hmm. If you sit there and say we're doing a show for Hulu, mm-hmm. they'll say half a dollar. And they'll know what's fair and, and what works. Got you. Now, can you give me a few examples of uh, stock footage being used in successful projects uh, that are like, let's say, feature films? Because we all know Ken Burns. We all know doc- documentaries. That's where archival kind of is known to be to make its bones, if you will. But for feature films, I don't I don't know any many of um, many examples. Yeah, uh, well, a lot of feature films use stock footage it may simply be the scene where the actors walk into a hotel room mm-hmm. and there's a tv on sure. and there's footage on the television and um that comes from somewhere you know so that's stock footage um i remember years ago there was a film called firestarter i used to have mm-hmm. an art film division and uh, we sold them some 1920s footage we had and it just played in a, te- a television scene where she's watching television and going from channel to channel, and I was one of the channels, so you know that's. And that's you, a, and and you like and you, that was footage that you owned. License, yeah. And so the the deal is, what you always have to think of, still images, music, films, always think of the nasty lawyer. <laughs> this will keep you honest, and this will keep make sure you do what you've got to do. Mm-hmm. You're covering your back. You're covering your back from the nasty lawyer. Um, also, um, it's, it even goes beyond the nasty lawyer. It can actually be, uh, the, the, um, trade councils of countries. Now, short story, um, years ago I did a, a documentary and we used a clip from a, uh, a foreign, uh, film and, um, I did a library of Congress search, which is what everyone should do if they have, they think they have a public domain piece of footage always request a Library of Congress research report to put in your errors and emissions report, which is the insurance package you get at the end of a film. Mm. Um, and uh, we did it. It aired on Discovery Channel. In the third year, the final airing, I get a call from a uh, production company from this country, foreign country, and they said, you used our film illegally and it's copyrighted, blah, blah, blah. So I said, well, I think we have a misunderstanding. I sent him uh, my Library of Congress report, which showed that I had done due diligence. It didn't matter. I got calls every week from them demanding thousands of dollars uh, that they really wanted, you know, the money, and we we broke the law, blah, blah, blah. And they actually had the trade mission from that country call me in an edit session. I mean, it really was, was wow. nasty stuff. And so finally, you know, I, I looked at them, or told them on a phone call, you know, you, I don't know if you're going to understand this, but you can't get blood out of a turnip. And I hung up on him. Mm-hmm. I guess he talked to somebody who translated that to him, and they stopped calling me. But the thing is, it was weeks worth of, of uh, very nasty phone calls 
And they were right, and I was right. Meaning, this was their film, mm -hmm. but they hadn't properly copyrighted it here, so I was able to use it. But it still didn't stop me from being, uh, you know, um, harangued, I guess you'd call it. So let, let me ask you that, because that's a, that's a something that's very interesting, and a lot of people kind of get lost in it. Copywriting here in the U.S. is one thing, but then there's copyrights in England, there's copyrights in France, there's copyrights all over the place. So if they want, so if a movie is made in the in in Australia, they'll copyright in Australia. But if it but if they want to protect it in the U.S., they have to they have to you know copyright it in the U.S. as well. Correct. Well, nowadays a copyright, um, if you copyright in the U.S., it's pretty, it's pretty much worldwide at this point. Mm -hmm. But what what happened was. For many, many years, the, the, the majority of time for um, uh, the feature film history, there were two copyright conventions. It was the Berne Convention, which was Europe and Asia and whatever. Mm -hmm. Most countries subscribed to it, but the U.S. didn't. The U.S. had its own copyright tribunal. And so if you copyright here, yes, you would have to go and do a, a Berne Convention copyright and have the two copyrights. So what you'll find is there were films that were copyrighted in Europe that turned public domain here. Mm -hmm. like Tropolis. Um, and it was a mess. And I think finally in the last uh, decade or so, uh, we signed on and now it's a, it really is a worldwide convention. So, so let me talk to you a little bit about stock footage, uh, or sure. public, excuse me, public domain footage. Um, because I've had so many questions about this, like the Alfred Hitchcock collection and Metropolis and Nosferatu and, of course, famously, Night, uh, Night of the Living Dead, which is why it's on every television of every independent movie ever made, because yeah. it's public domain. Um, but films like specifically like the Hitchcock collection, which yeah. they has, there's the British Hitchcock films, which is early on, like The Lodger and Jamaica Inn and other things like that. Then they, and then there's the US version. From what I understand, uh, using his films, you could arguably use the British films here as public domain because it went public domain here in the States, but you cannot show it in England or anywhere that's accessible to England. Is that correct? Not correct? Well, um, that's a loaded question. And so, <laughs> I'm, you know, half the book really talks about this, but in a nutshell, here's the deal. Mm -hmm. Um, there's clear public domain, there's murky public domain. Mm -hmm. Foreign films, I call that murky public domain mm -hmm. because it could have been shown here and they could have copyrighted under a different title. Mm -hmm. So it may have been released overseas in one title and released here as another title. Um, when it was released is a big issue. So when if it was produced 75 years ago, it falls under the old copyright law. If it was produced in the last 20 years, it falls under the new one. The old one was 28 years with renewal. The new one is 75 years and 85 years and, you know, 5,000 years. And you might as well consider it. We're never going to see Mickey Mouse is basically no, what you're saying. No. We're never going to see Steamboat Willie public domain. I don't think so. The studios are too powerful. <laughs> uh, so that's one area you really have to be careful about is, is, is it really public domain uh, because um, someone says it is? Um, I always go by the Library of Congress research report. Mm -hmm. That's your backup. Again, think of the nasty attorney. Think of protecting yourself from that lawsuit. And so if someone tells you it's public domain, fine. Um, but go get it for like things like 10 or $12 per title. Get it verified. 
No, if you but if you if you buy, let's say, one of these films um, yeah. from a, a a library, a stock a stock house, says, "Hey, right. here's I got a pristine thirty five millimeter print of The Lodger." You know, which is uh, and and I can and I could get it to you digitally or beta SP or right. digibate or whatever, and they tell me, "Hey, you know, you could play it here in the U.S., but you can't play it in England." Is that something? It's something, but you know, think about your sales. I mean, nowadays your sales in the U.S. are not what they were twenty years ago. Right. In the old days, you had home video sales, you had a, a, a pay cable, you had basic cable, you had a syndication, you had all these possibilities to make money. Now. You basically you streaming goes thrown in and streaming and that pays bupkis mm -hmm. and so really the world is more of your market nowadays and um so the dollars have changed um i would check to see if it is available overseas because the u.s is so small part of the market um i just finished a film uh sold all, all over europe but we couldn't make a sale here because of, of these rights issues and they were just too expensive here Really? So there was just footage that you used in the movie that just music, but yeah, it was, oh, music. It was too expensive here. Where in Europe they do it completely differently. In Europe, you do a uh, a report, you turn it in, and it goes to uh, royalty reports and it pays it. Where here you have to license it directly from the uh, um, music companies. Oh, so in other words, so yeah, basically everybody, basically you have all the music available to you in Europe, and it just like you just pay in the system, and the system pays yeah. them out. I mean, all every filmmaker in the U.S. wishes it were that way here, but it kills it. I, I could not show this film. It's a good film. And I couldn't show the film in the U.S. because the license fees for the music alone were probably three times what the most I could have gotten from a Netflix sale. Really? It's astronomical. It's right. So, so if you wanted a Beatles song <laughs> or you wanted an Elvis song or something like that, you actually literally have to go to who owns the, uh, yeah, the publishing. And, and, and performance right issues. And that's all U.S., Mm -hmm. So I, I did a film about Star Trek years ago, and not that many years ago, three years ago, and I wanted to use the Alexander Courage theme song. They started at $10,000. What? Yeah. Really? Well, there's, I mean, I don't know if you guys are checking, but our documentaries from Netflix, 10000 is kind of not that far from the ballpark. Mm -hmm. I would have barely paid for, for my is that what Is that what Netflix is paying now? Well, if you're lucky, Netflix was taking everything, and now they're getting much, much choosier. And they're and then they're just being pickier with, and then they're not paying a whole lot anymore. Well, they never did pay that much. You remember, a Netflix scale kills every cable sale too. So you know, it's um, yeah, it's I'm the very Netflix. last end. It's the last last thing you do. So back to the book. The whole book. The reason why I wrote the book was to kind of explain all this because as you're kind of hearing, it's really it's murky. It's murky it's as heck. Like, and you got to know all the elements and know how to deal with them. And that's what I hopefully accomplished writing this thing. Now, where can where can filmmakers find um, stock footage if they're just looking for? Because now we were talking about archival footage, meaning films and things like that. But there is other kind of archival footage. Um, there's just stock footage in general. Like if you need a aerial of New York City, you can go and find a place. You know, where do people go out and find that stuff? Well, you know... I, I don't know how many students over the years said, well, let's just go to YouTube and download it. Okay. <laughs> so let me explain the problem with the, I'll just go to YouTube and download it. There's um, a few, there's a, there's a couple. Yeah. I mean, it's, it's, it's been done, but here's the deal. Again, go back to that nasty attorney who's sitting right in back yet. So you download it from YouTube. You get a letter the next week after it releases 
I'm, um, I'm the nasty attorney. I represent the producer. And you took this producer's YouTube copy without permission and showed it. Okay. So what do you say? Well, it's public domain. And then the producer will come back and say, prove it. So here's the deal. This is why you have archival footage houses and studios. They write you a letter. It's a license agreement. They say, we own it or we own these rights and we give it to you for this fee. So when that nasty attorney calls and you say, well, I got this from Getty or Corvus or whoever, mm -hmm. and I paid them two or $3,000 for it. And they say they own it. You talk to them about your issues. So it's, a, it's kind of like a legal protection. Exactly. Number two is if you do this and if you really, you know, um, shot by shot, you go through it and make sure every shot you have is protected. At the end of the day, if you have a film that's going to make some money, you have to have errors and emissions insurance. This is insurance where if someone actually does sue you, they will take care of it. So believe me, as a producer, you want errors and emissions insurance because when you get that nasty phone call where they actually do have some type of legal standing, you say, talk to my um, insurance and here's the phone number, good luck. And the insurance people know how to deal with these people. And so, because what the insurance has done is they've gone through your script scene by scene and made sure you have protected yourself. So when the call comes, they say, every scene is licensed. We double checked it. You're wrong. So let me ask you about this lovely term called fair use. Yeah. Um, especially when it comes to documentary. Um, well, I, even, I don't think you could do it for narrative, but you can, you can claim fair use in documentary a lot. Can you explain what fair use is and what are the limitations of fair use when dealing with archival? My understanding of fair use is the law permits for educational purposes, mm -hmm. educating the public, educating the audience, usage of what is copyright material uh, in very short form. So you can't take 10, 20, 30 minutes of something and stick it in um, and say, well, it's fair use. I mean, but if you use a 10 second, 20 second clip within an educational environment, uh, people or news reels, for example, TV news. Uh, oftentimes, you'll see copyright images on your constantly. Yeah, I mean, and they don't worry about it because it is covered under the fair use protection. Mm -hmm. Where it gets murky is where Michael Moore does a film that makes sixty million dollars, and um, or you know, or Sasha Baron Cohen, and they're saying, "Well, we're protected by fair use because it's educational." Um, so this is where you always have to think of that attorney. The attorney goes, oh, you guys made $50 million last, uh, last film. year on that film. And um, I'm sorry, this is not under fair use. This is entertainment. The success in the commercial market proves this is entertainment and not an educational mission. And there they try to break that fair use argument. And so what you've got is um, the lawyers arguing. You're paying $400 an hour for the lawyers to argue the point. Mm -hmm. So what I always tell filmmakers, and I've always told my students throughout the years, is, well, we if you're going to use fair use, I really hope you have a failure in your project and it doesn't get a penny. Uh, mm -hmm. Because if you actually do make money, no matter how much you think you're protected by this fair use argument, you may, uh, the commercial success of it may um, hurt your fair use protection because they smell money and it's worth the settlement effort. So if you've made $50 million on your feature, they're coming after, I'll come after you. And so fair use is a, it's a really, it's a great thing. 
and it's for public television. That's a good usage, probably for Hulu because of the license agreement. You can you can call it, you know, the the Alex Ferry, you know, news show. I'm sure you protected. <laughs> sure. But um, Michael Moore, I'm sure those lawyers keep busy. So the, so things like because um, I've seen this a lot on YouTube where they do these. Um, uh, ex uh, explanation of scenes in movies uh, and things like that. And YouTube is constantly hitting people up with copyright issues with that. But as long as you're talking over the footage and explaining it, it's part of fair use as well, because it's because you are explaining it. It is, it is a, a public explanation, educational, or just your opinion, um, which is a big thing. And also satire. It, it, you can get away yeah. with satire a lot too, because if you look at the Daily Show, you look at any of these late night shows, they'll bust out copyrighted footage right. in the middle, of, you know, from a movie that has nothing to do with anything, it's, but it's satire. satire. And yeah, I mean, and they're they may be trying to get away with it on on that. Um. So you also have this other issue, um, which deals with image rights mm -hmm. and exploitation of image rights. So if you um, show a Coca-Cola image and you sit there and say, there it is. Here's a Coca-Cola image and it's the worst drink ever made. And you, yeah. and you sit there and you show people drinking it and throwing up, whatever. Yeah, no, no. Mm -hmm. And it comes from a public domain Coca-Cola commercial. And then you play with it. Mm -hmm. I think you're going to get a call <laughs> from Coca-Cola attorneys saying you have tampered with our very tightly controlled image rights of Coca-Cola. Mm -hmm. And so that becomes another area where um, you may or may not be protected. Yes, it's a fair usage of, yes, the commercial may be considered a public domain commercial that you've used because it's older than, you know, it hasn't been copyrighted or whatever. Mm -hmm. But if you're demeaning an image, you're opening yourself up for a potential lawsuit. Well, okay. Exploited themselves during the time they were alive. Mm. Has a lawyer alive today, representing even if they're dead, representing that estate of that James Dean, Marilyn Monroe, Chaplin, yeah. Chaplin, because they exploited the image when they were alive. Um, Elvis Presley, uh, that estate guarding that image of him makes tens of millions of dollars a year off the image. And if you do anything with that image that demeans and, and they say hurts that image, you're holding yourself liable for a problem. So they, so that's a good example. So <clears throat> I've heard of of you know people like Chaplin's estate and things like that because there are a lot of Chaplin movies, Buster Keaton movies that are sure. public domain. Yeah. Um. And arguably, you could just play them in their entirety. But if you do anything else, at, I mean, because arguably public domain stuff, you could do whatever you want. You know, arguably. But yeah. if you're editing in Chaplin with a porno, nah, not so much. It's, that's not going to work. <laughs> yeah, that's where the image right comes in. Right. Uh, if you do a commercial and you show, um, right. you, know, you know, what do you think of this cigarette, Charlie? And then you have a <laughs> shot of Charlie Chapman smiling and going like that. Lawsuit. Because you are using him in, to exploit uh, a, uh, a commercial product. And is that why Disney is so, so crazily protective of Steamboat Willie? Because arguably Steamboat Willie should have been... Uh, and for people who listening who don't know what Steamboat Willie is, it is the first Mickey Mouse cartoon right. and the first sound cartoon. Uh, Still very copyrighted. Yeah. But it's copyrighted both as a film and also the image right of, of Mickey Mouse. 
And so, but eventually, it's supposed to go into public domain. Eventually, yeah. but the image rights may not. So, so in other words, the movie itself would, but you could never play it. Well, once it legally falls into public domain, you could use it in your documentary. Mm -hmm. But if you tried to use Mickey in a commercial, Done. that's explaining the image, and that's where you get the problems. And and Disney has a, a very uh, large legal team. Oh yeah, and well practiced. <laughs> Very well practiced, especially when it comes to their, to their copyrighted uh, images and, and stuff. Um, it's fascinating. I know. I mean, I, I, stock footage is always it's it's always been uh, an interesting thing for me because, especially public domain stuff, because you just like, oh wow, I, you know, you could just grab a whole bunch of Hitchcock's films and and Chaplin films and and Buster Keaton films and and project them on a screen somewhere, and you can. But there is that murkiness that you talk about in the book. Yeah. Well, you know, you just have to know what you need, and then you have to know how to deal with it. Once you break it down into that uh, one, two step, it's not that difficult. Mm -hmm. um, you just have to do it. That's the problem. I mean, a lot of people just don't want to deal with it. It's like, oh, I got enough headaches just making this film. I don't want to have to sit there and deal with all these lawyers and licenses and well, welcome to the adult world. This is what we do. And that's why, again, if you have the money, hire the film clip person because uh, to them, they don't have, they don't lose sleep over it. They're just being hired to do it and they do a great job. So is that the reason why in every independent film ever made, you see the Night of the Living Dead on television because it is pretty much solidly copyright free or in public domain? Yeah. And, uh, but to even tell you, uh, okay, the more famous example, or just as famous, is It's a Wonderful Life. Yeah, that was, exactly. So It's a Wonderful Life was a, was a commercial failure when it was released. Mm -hmm. uh, Liberty Films folded, and 28 years later, which was the length of the old copyright law, uh, no one was around to renew it. And then this, uh, the TV stations in the mid-70s caught, you know, uh, caught hold that this may be a pretty good Christmas film. So they all started airing it because it was public domain, and they all went through. And then, so what's so funny is um, Turner got wind of it that it was public domain, so they colorized it. So suddenly there was a copyrighted version, the sure. colorized version. And then um, one of my music clearance people uh, told me many, many years ago, guess what? It's one of life is in the black and white version is not public domain anymore. I said, how can you do that? Yeah. I was hired to go back and copyright all of the music that was in it separately. And if you listen to that film, it's wall-to-wall -wall music. Right. So they, the letter that then her client would send out was not that we own copyright to the film, but we own copyright to all the music to the film, and therefore we own this film, and you owe us money for airing it. But so, so but how, how do you separate the two? Like, how, how could you go back? And, 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 and redo that and, and uh, yeah. go through this in the book, but here's the deal. Look at every film as the elements that go into it. Mm -hmm. So uh, nowadays, for example, if you license um, a new Star Wars clip and the studio says, okay, fine, Alex, we'll give it to you for $20,000, $25,000 a minute, which is kind of standard nowadays. 25000 a minute. Yeah, $20,000, 25000 a minute. Okay. Okay. Well, okay, fine. I'll do it. You're not done. You've got now all the secondary clearances that go with that because, you know, as filmmakers, we know we've got music. 
Well, that's a separate clearance. The studio doesn't necessarily own that. And you have the director's uh, clearance. You've got to go to the director's guild and pay them money, and the writer's guild and pay them money. And every actor that appears in that scene, and with the others, or they just have to take the money and there's a set amount, the actor, you have to negotiate them out, and they can say yes or no. Um, you know, many years ago, I did a, a show on um, censorship in movies. Uh, Peter Fonda was the host. Mm -hmm. And uh, there was a scene in there from Easy Riders. If you remember the film Easy Rider, the really famous scene in there is where um, Jack Nicholson and uh, Dennis Hopper and Peter Fonda are around a campfire and they're smoking dope. Yeah. It's the first time Jack uh, Nicholson smoked a joint, right? I mean, that's the, that's the quintessential scene in Easy Rider besides the, the ending. And um, I needed, I wanted to use that film clip. It was, it was part of the story. It was actually banned. You know, it took the film and the host of the film was in it and was friends supposedly with Jack Nicholson. So uh, we, we call Jack Nicholson's agent. And, you know, we want to use it. And we're paying everyone a thousand a minute. And they come back and say, nope, Jack doesn't do clip shows, quote unquote. I always remember that. And we couldn't use it. And I had to use a completely different scene. Uh, just didn't work as well. And so you never, I mean, these are the complexities you're dealing with. Every film is broken into the bits and pieces. That's insane. <laughs> yes. <laughs> it makes my head hurt thinking about well, it. You know, it makes you think twice of doing documentaries. Because they're not, they're a lot of work. You don't make that much money. And you got to deal with this stuff because you don't want to be dealing with the headaches of, of Universal or Sony calling you up and... Um, Threatening to sue you. Is it just basically a, at a certain point? Is it's just a bully thing? That could, they have so many resources, they can outspend you a billion to one, and they know it. So they're like, "Look, we're just going to bully you until you give us some money." Basically, exactly. That's what. Isn't that what law is? Pretty much. <laughs> You're not going to hire the nice attorney that doesn't want to hurt anyone's feelings. You want to hire a, a barracuda that's that's got really sharp teeth that can go after people because. You know, and the film business is notorious for that. That's that's ridiculous. Now, I, I, there was a movie that I saw when in my video store days uh, that used it was a unique film because the entire movie was made of stock footage. Yeah, and it was called Atomic Cafe. Oh yeah, sure. You remember Atomic Cafe? Sure. Can you tell the audience a little bit about that that film because it's become a cult classic over the years? Yeah. Yeah. Well, the theme was that the early 1950s when. Um, the atomic bomb, they were trying to find useful uh, purpose for sides, you know, destroying cities. And so uh, they came up with all these, like, you know, you can drink it as an elixir and it'll be healthy for you. Uh, <laughs> you, know, you can survive in a, a nuclear uh, bomb attack by hiding under the desk. And so this um, filmmaker, I forget his name at the moment, uh, put together a whole film of material that was just of... I mean, they were all entertaining because they were all so ridiculous, and he was able to craft an entire feature film out of that. But they were all basically either industrial films, educational films, or government films. Mm -hmm. so it was pretty clear um, when it was made, there was uh, very little concern about music, so I'm sure he cleared whatever music was there, if any, mm -hmm. for, for a very cheap price. And so it was an affordable price. It, you know, I don't know if the audience today, if that were released today in the movie theaters, as well because we're so sophisticated but um mm -hmm. yeah those days it was, it was a hit because it really was something we could laugh at 
Right. Now, you, you also said something about government. Uh, can you please let everybody know in regards to government footage and government, uh, anything that the government makes is, yeah. to my knowledge, public domain. So any, any NASA stuff, anything, the, right. the moon landing, all that stuff is complete public domain, correct? Yeah. Yeah. And what you do, and, um, and I mentioned this in the book, how to do it, um, you assume it may or may not be public domain. And what I mean by that is they may have music that they licensed in it that may be copyrighted. Mm -hmm. So if you're seeing a film and suddenly they're playing a theme song from a 1960s uh, television show, they may have just licensed it and it fit. They're producers just as much as we're producers. Mm -hmm. So that's one thing to be careful about. Um, years ago, I did a, a documentary on disasters and I used a film, um, a government film about earthquake and earthquake damage. Mm-hmm. And in the film was like a minute from MGM's classic uh, San Francisco, Clark Gable, mm-hmm. and the whole destruction of San Francisco. Well, it came from that film. That's not public domain. That's very copyrighted. So if I would have just pulled that out, stuck that in my film, mm-hmm. I would have gotten a call probably from MGM at some point going, excuse me, you just used a minute. And if I said, well, I got it from this government film, they said, we don't care. Yeah. Yeah, we licensed it to them 40 years ago, but the point is you used it. So music, um, reuse, I mean, those are issues you just have to be aware of. Mm-hmm. Um, but for the most part, it's much safer to use government films than, than any other type. So like any of the NASA footage, just be careful with, I mean, if it's sound by just them talking is fine. But yeah. when you, yeah, if you, you're hearing Neil Armstrong say whatever he says, uh, but when you have music underneath it, that's when... It becomes problems. Careful, yeah. Now there is like something like that. Um, let's say the NASA footage. Um, to find high quality versions of that is mm-hmm. also like another because there's a lot of stock footage. I mean, you could download, go to what is it, archive.org or gov or something like that. Um, yeah, or YouTube or whatever. Yeah, exactly. And there, it's there for you to download as as a um, that is public domain. But to how to access the high quality now. 2K versions or 4K versions or even just plain HD versions of this stuff. That's where uh, these stock footage houses really make their money. Because I've I've actually reached out to companies who have, let's say, uh, um, Night of the Living Dead, let's say. They're like, oh, but we have a 35 millimeter print and it's pristine and we've transferred it. And, you know, as opposed to something you could download off of YouTube, you know, it's completely different. Uh, is that where you have to go to find this kind of really high quality version of the stuff? Yeah, 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 yeah. And how mean, do you, you have to, to the sources? Um, and well, the government has uh, you can call it the National Archives directly mm-hmm. if it's National Archives. NASA has its own film uh, department, so you you know do a Google search, find out you know if it's in Houston now, whatever, and you know, go to them directly. Uh, if you're going to be going directly to the original source, they may be requesting um, things from you. So they may request, you know, what are you doing? How are you using it? Um, that type of information. And they may or may not give it to you. Mm-hmm. So just because you found the, the original source doesn't mean you're going to automatically get it. They don't have to give it to you. Uh, there's someone there, it's called a bureaucrat, and they decide, you know, this is, this is worthy of us giving to them or not. If you're doing a recruitment film for the uh, for, for um, the Moscow um, yeah. Secret Service, um, you're not going to get any FBI films from here. 
Correct. And uh, and I've and years ago, I actually reached out to NASA about stuff. And you can get. I mean, there's just such a massive amount of, just massive yeah. amount of clips. Plus the time you want to help you, yeah. But the thing, not only that, but then it's like, okay, if you want it in beta SP, it costs this much. If you want it in digi beta, this is years ago. Yeah, well, here's the point for all filmmakers to remember now. We've now had about 10 plus years of high def. Mm-hmm. So we're used to high def. Well, here's the thing to keep in mind. Yeah. We have 120 years worth of media. 10 years of it has hot as HD. Over 100 years of it is not. It's called SD, you know, standard. Mm-hmm. Yeah. So you're not going to be getting 69 high depth or 99% of what's out there. Unless and, you go, unless you get a 35 millimeter print. And then retransfer it. Right. And yeah, at, at $400 an hour, a telecine and mm-hmm. yeah. And a lot of this stuff is 16 millimeter. I got to tell you, if taking a 16 millimeter and blowing it up through um, to high depth, oftentimes kind of works against you because all the scratches and all the things that come in the 16 mm-hmm. prints, you're seeing those ways you didn't want to see them. So SD may actually even be a better way to go because the image is actually going to probably look possibly better. So you have to be real careful about that. Now, how can filmmakers make money with their own stock footage? Because if I go out, I mean, I live here in Los Angeles, but I go out and go to Hollywood Boulevard and have my beautiful red camera and I shoot a whole bunch of stock footage of, yeah. of, of Hollywood Boulevard. By the way, there's thousands of that. So anyone living in Los Angeles, don't do that. Um, but if you do that, where do I go? Um, a couple of places. I mean, the most immediate are Adobe and, and places like Adobe and Vimeo that have their own stock footage um, services built into their um, offerings. So if you go to Vimeo, they have it. If you go to Adobe, they've got it and you can just upload it. And then if anyone takes it, you get a piece of the pie mm-hmm. uh, footage.net is another site to look at possibly if you have enough stock footage you can um, advertise it on footage.net um, for most filmmakers the question to ask is do i have something that's rare so right. you know a shot of grandma's chinese or mom's chinese forget please, it please <laughs> uh, you know if you got something that really is unique rare interesting and you think some filmmakers around the world would like it you can call, go to film, uh, footage.net, look at all the big um, archive houses, and then contact each of them and say, I'd like you to represent and see if any uh, would like to represent it. And you get, you know, 40, 50, 60% or whatever of, of the profit if there is a sale. So if you, live in a, if you live in a unique place that there's not, like obviously Los Angeles, I mean, seriously, the, shot, the city has been shot a billion times. So every corner of it is, is somewhere on stock footage or, or in a film. But if you live in Guam and or in let's say you live in Hawaii and you saw that volcano blow up a few years uh, last year, right? Um, that's unique you, footage. If you scuba dive and you're scuba diving and getting some great HD footage, you know that's a possibility. If your grandfather was an avid 60 millimeter uh, cameraman and shot all this stuff on 60 millimeter, oh, can you imagine? And actually, I've got some of that stuff in my archives. It's just wonderful material. I've got a shot from the Hindenburg that was shot as a home movie. Um, it's great stuff. And that's stuff you can actually resell. That's, that's because, they, because there's no copyright on it. It's, and if you own it, it's yours. 
it's yours, so you can actually then consider it copyrighted. Now, if you um, now do you own you own also own like a footage house as well that you yeah. license? When I did my um, Paramount uh, documentary back in the mid seventies, mm -hmm. started collecting. I went, you know, and then I had a friend about nineteen eighty or so that was working in um, Entertainment Tonight. Mm -hmm. And he knew I had all this old footage, and so they keep calling me and saying, "Oh, I need this, and I need this, and I'd sell to him." I was making all of it. I was making more money selling to entertainment tonight than I was making producing films, mm -hmm. and that's what made me think I really should be doing this as well as making films. I'm mm -hmm. enjoying films, but I'm making money selling stock footage. So um, I started back in the mid '70s doing that. Now I've got about five thousand uh, titles in my art in my database. Nice. And so then people contact you if they want to access, you know, certain things. Well, yeah, I had it for about 20 years as a business. And um, then I went into academia and mm -hmm. uh, closed it up because I I was doing fine just teaching. Mm -hmm. and, but it, right now, it's, you know, friends call me. I need this. I need that. And I just send it to them. Um, every year I'm doing one or two films. And so I don't have to worry about stock footage because I just go and see what I've got and make sure I have enough for it. And is that a fairly high quality, or is it all standard def, HD? Uh, I've got uh, 700 films, and then the rest is uh, one inch beta and then three quarter. And you, and you films uh, meaning, and films meaning 635. what? Okay, but there are like actual narrative films or, or reels, uh, government films, industrials, educational, newsreels, cartoons. Uh, oftentimes, they fit the themes of films I did over the years. So if mm -hmm. I was doing films on Disasters. I got lots of disasters. I did war-related films. I got lots of war-related um, films, and I'd always get films that were public domain or considered public domain. So then, once you, so basically, as a, as you're being a filmmaker, you're yeah. gathering a collection of these clips, yeah. which then you could resell later because yeah, they become. I, I would get more than the clips. I would buy the entire films mm -hmm. because it was cheaper for me to buy an entire half-hour hour film. Mm -hmm. license anything from anyone so then when you buy so okay so then it, so just so i'm clear so then you would just buy the film 30 minute let's say cartoon of tom and jerry uh yeah. you buy the, you know a bunch of them a series of them uh that's in the public domain but right. once you've got that at a high quality now it's in your archives right and now you can sell yeah it. and the secret is finding i mean buying it knowing it's in the public domain and that's takes a little expertise got it and that's where you need the clip uh clip person to help you <laughs> or they call you if you, but you don't do that anymore. <laughs> now, where can uh, now where can people buy uh, people find your book? Um, I think everywhere at this point it's um, Amazon, of course. Um, it's available on the mwp.com, which is uh, the publisher Michael Wilson Productions, their um, site, and also any bookstore can order it if they don't have it already on their shelves. Very cool. And is there any website? Is there a website uh, that you have? Yeah, there's a, a website for the book called stockfootagethebook.com. Mm -hmm. mm -hmm. So there's some more information on that. Uh, and there's also a Facebook page. Very cool. Uh, and I'm going to ask you a few questions I ask all of my guests. Mm -hmm. um, what advice would you give a filmmaker wanting to break into the business today? Um, well, first thing I would always advise anyone is if they're in school, uh, look around the classmates and see where you stand compared to them. Uh, if you're looking at a class of 30 students, uh, one to two of them will be able to get 
up into the next level, which is a, uh, an internship that will lead to a first job. Are you as good, are you at the top, or are there 10 people ahead of you? If you're sitting in there for whatever reason, you're getting a D or a C, and there's a person getting an A or A minus, that's telling you one thing right away that the, the competition just at school is already beating you. So mm -hmm. just a warning. Uh, second thing is, got to get an internship. Uh, figure out what you're best at. Editing, shooting, getting coffee. It doesn't matter, whatever you're best at. Because it's, again, it's this crazy competitive world. It always has been worse than ever now mm -hmm. because there's 5,000 film schools and everybody's turning out Steven Spielberg, of course. Mm -hmm. So if you're good at whatever, your chances, whatever it is, you may not be as interested in it, but your chances of success are greatly increased than if you're saying, well, I want to be a director, but you know, you have no clue how to direct. So that's number two. Number three is once you get an internship, um, rule of thumb with internships is uh, you make sure that you do 110% every day and you leave that internship with one or two people that think you are the best. You're not likely going to get a job at that place, but if you've impressed one or two people, and they'll let you know that you go to them at the end of them and say, you know, I'm available for work. You have anyone you could send me to that I could get employed with and they will then do that. And that's how you kind of break in. And once you've broken in wherever that level is, well, you know, the career, ch everything changes so quickly a year two, three years from now, who knows? I mean, in five years from now, everything may be virtual reality films. We mm -hmm. don't know. Mm -hmm. So you don't worry about five years from now. You worry about getting that first paid job. And that's kind of the sequence I just laid out how you do it. And it's kind of what I've, I've told. I mean, I've had literally had several thousand students over the last few years. And I tell them the same thing. And the ones that listen to me, they've got work. And the ones that did listen to me, thinking they knew better, they're now probably at Walmart reading people or wherever they are, but they're not in the film industry. That's how I got my start. I had multiple internships, multiple, yeah. multiple internships. And I got hired uh, often. After. Yeah. yeah, PA yeah, jobs or, you know, yeah. running around or, hey, you want to be the office PA for a little bit? I'm mean, sure I'll be the office but PA. But you're good at it. You, yeah. you, you didn't go into work saying, I know how to do this. No, you can't. I remember when I first started, I would hire uh, undergrads mm -hmm. that were super passionate. And they always impressed me much more than hiring the grads, the graduate students, who really thought they knew better than me how to make a film. <laughs> yeah. Yes, the ego. Isn't that always amazing? <laughs> so just, you know, check it at the uh, at the desk. Walk in there and let everyone think that they are the smartest people in the world and that you really are getting a lot from them, even if you think they're an idiot. Isn't uh, isn't it? A, but the thing is, when when those egos do walk in the door, the business will sort them out. It always does. <laughs> but no, you know, it's very quick to tell those people that really think they know what they're doing because basically. Uh, all my years of, of running into those people, I'd say, good luck, and uh, let me know when you sell your first film. Good luck. Yeah. <laughs> I deal with that on a daily basis, <laughs> dealing with egos and people who have uh, delusions of grandeur. I'm like, yes. dream big, but... Yeah, be real. But, exactly, and there has to be a balance between the two. Yeah. Now, can you tell me what book had the biggest impact on your life or career? Um. I love reading, so I don't know if there's one book, uh, there's one a combination of, of types of books. Mm -hmm. um, I'm a big believer that you've got to be a storyteller, that every film you're making, at the end of the day, it's not how you're cutting it, it's the story you're telling. 
So um, the classics, you know, you're going back to, uh, you know, Weathering Heights or Gone with the Winter. Books that have really good story structures. I'm, I love Michael Connelly. Mm-hmm. Um, the reason there's 30 Michael Connelly books out there because this guy has a really good way of telling the story. Uh, it's visual. Uh, it draws you in. The same thing with the old classics um, in Dickens. Those were books that you actually saw the story unfold. And so that's why they were so easily taken from the book to the screen. So that's one area. I liked reading about people in the industry mm-hmm. and how they succeeded. It's not like I was going to follow their success, but to read books by Goldman and um, mm-hmm. Mayer and whatever, how they actually went from um, nothing to building themselves up to you know the best in their craft is really you, you pick up pieces that can help you. And uh, throughout the years, I did a lot of films. Um, about Hollywood and Hollywood history, probably about 30, 35, um, any from half hour to features. And I interviewed a lot of people who were kind of, in, nowadays you consider them the, the early pioneers. So I, I'd interview Nat Levine. Nat Levine, the members of Nat Levine, he started Republic Studios. Mm-hmm. He started uh, Mascot, which became Republic. Uh, I interviewed Hal Roach um, and did a documentary about him. The Little Rascals, Laurel and Hardy. Sure. So those people also kind of, I picked up things from them, how they succeeded, how they worked. Uh, my mom's old boss was a guy named Colonel Parker. Uh, <laughs> yeah, um, of course, Elvis. Old time I was three on. Colonel Parker, which really is very interesting. Um, when Donald Trump got elected, I went, wait, got Colonel Parker now as president. Because mm-hmm. Donald Trump is a exact duplicate of Colonel Parker in terms of uh, what Colonel Parker used to call his philosophy was snowing. He used to snow people. Mm-hmm. Snow person is a person you con. It's another word for conning people. Mm-hmm. Um, that's what we've got as a president. This guy knows how, and just like Colonel did, how to make people believe something that's not true. And But you're not sure if it's true or not true. And you get confused. Right. And, and so, you know, having grown up with Colonel my whole life till I was in my late 20s, um, I knew a snowman. And so I, I woke up in November 2016 and went, ah, we got a snowman as president. This will be interesting. He's in, in Colonel, um, the Colonel Parker. He, he is one of the main reasons you think that Elvis was as popular as he was. I mean, obviously Elvis was Elvis. Elvis was an incredible talent, but you needed, he, you needed that, that gas. He was the fire, but I think Colonel Parker was the gasoline on it to make it a raging fire. Would yeah, you agree? And, he, and he thought that himself. I mean, I've got, um, I remember my mom used to always tell me stories about telling Colonel, oh, Elvis did this and Elvis did that. And Colonel said, yeah, Trudy. And, you know, all that, if I hadn't have taken him off of this plumbing um, job and, you know, put him in front of those audiences, he'd still be on his plumbing truck. Gotcha. So, you know, yeah. <laughs> Now, what lesson took you the longest to learn, whether in the film business or in life? Uh, the one I'm still learning is is, um, uh, and I don't know if it's a lesson or or just a, a reality of the business um, of getting up, you know, after being knocked down, dusting off yourself, and then going back and fighting one more day. Mm-hmm. This is a business of no's. The reason it's a business of no's is very simple. It's a lot easier to say no to something than to say, yeah, go ahead and do it. You say, go ahead and do it. 
you're on the line. And so most people are very, very reticent to sit there and say, yeah, go ahead and do that. Okay, I'll help you. Where if you sit there and say, no, you don't have to deal with it. You're not going to have headaches. It's not going to be a failure. And so convincing people to join in a project and then all the work that's involved in getting a, a film or television show made uh, requires a lot of people saying yes, which is not a natural thing in the film business. And that's probably the toughest part to me is, is just going, okay, what am I going to do today to avoid what happened yesterday? Fair enough. And three of your favorite films of all time. Um, oh, God. <laughs> okay, well, um, Mr. Smith Goes to Washington. Okay. Uh, that's on the top of my list. I, I show that every year when I was teaching film history, and I never ceased to be amazed uh, at, at what Capra was able to do with that film. I, I know every word of it, and it still kind of uh, brings me in. Mm. Uh, uh, not so much film, but filmmaker of Busby Berkeley. Mm -hmm. I, I've seen every one of his films, and I look at those dance numbers. I mean, the stories are not while you watch them. You look at those and go, how in the hell did he do that? <laughs> pretty remarkable. Yeah, I mean, you know, all these years later, it's, it's, it's pretty amazing. It'd be tough to do it today, honestly, some of the stuff yeah. he did. It was amazing. Oh, it's, it's totally amazing. And I, I got into documentaries because of um, an old documentary filmmaker named Les Blank. And Les Blank um, was great at um, um, taking, uh, taking a story, real life, and putting it together as an entertainment piece. So not to be confused with Mel Blank that made funny voices out of it. <laughs> Bugs Bunny, yes. And then where can people find your work and, uh, and, and the stuff you do? Um, no clue. But I, if you go to Force Your Productions, mm -hmm. uh, it's a list of films I've done or some of them. And uh, a lot of those are on eBay. You know, I, you can buy a lot of my films for very cheap because they're, you know, they're VHS and DVDs and whatever. Mm -hmm. um, so I commercially have nothing available out in the market as of today in America, um, Europe, yes, but not here. Because what I've been producing lately, I can't afford to sell in America. And, uh, and of course, if they want to license any footage, they can contact you. <laughs> oh, please. Plenty of footage, anywhere from, you know, the very cheap to pretty expensive. Fair enough. Uh, James, thank you so much for spending the thank time you. with me and dropping some knowledge bombs on the tribe today. I appreciate it. I want to thank James for coming by and really enlightening us on what stock footage is and how we can use it to make our films better. If you want access to anything we talked about in this episode and a link to his book, which I highly, highly recommend, head over to IndieFilmMuscle.com forward slash 307. And I can't tell you how many times I've used aerial shots, stock footage shots in my work over the years in editorial as well as in narrative work. So definitely check it out and see what it could do for you guys. And if you haven't already, this week we will be releasing Shooting for the Mob, my new book that is coming out about how I almost made a $20 million film with a mobster and how I was flown around Hollywood and basically the companion piece, if you will, to Rebel Without a Crew. He had a very successful journey. I didn't. And it's a really great companion piece to that book. Uh, and I also talk a lot about Robert in that book as well, Robert Rodriguez, the author of uh, Rebel Without a Crew. So if you want to get access to the book, please 
head over to IndieFilmHustle.com forward slash mob, and I'll take you directly to the Amazon page. And if any of you guys out there who have already read the book, please leave me a good review on Amazon. It really, really helps things out a lot. So I truly, truly appreciate it, guys. As always, keep that hustle going. Keep that dream alive, and I'll talk to you soon. Thanks for listening to the Indie Film Hustle podcast at IndieFilmHustle.com. That's I-N-D-I-E-F-I-L-M-H-U-S-T-L-E.com. Your Total Wine & More store is ready to serve you with our always low prices on an incredible 8,000 wines and 2,500 beers. Want it today? Try our same-day delivery or contactless curbside pickup at TotalWine.com. Whether you're grabbing your favorite beer or pouring a glass to enjoy an evening on the deck, Total Wine & More has you covered. Visit any of our 12 stores in Northern Virginia. Your Total Wine & More store is ready to serve you with our always low prices on an incredible 8,000 wines and 2,500 beers. Want it today? Try our same-day delivery or contactless curbside pickup at TotalWine.com. Whether you're grabbing your favorite beer or pouring a glass to enjoy an evening on the deck, Total Wine & More has you covered. Visit any of our 12 stores in Northern Virginia.